And so I was talking to my PhD advisor and he had great perspective. He was the vice dean for research at Penn. And he told me, you know, you should go pick a disease and cure it. That's the voice of Sam Murphy, co-founder of Salubris Biotherapeutics, headquartered in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Listen in now to hear my conversation with Sam, his thoughts about leadership in biopharma and advances in therapeutics for treatment of cancer, cardiovascular, and metabolic diseases. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. This afternoon, I'm in Cambridge with Sam Murphy, co-founder of Salubris Biotherapeutics. Welcome to BioBoss, Sam. Thanks for having me, John. How did you find yourself at Salubris Bio? Well, it was a little bit of a circuitous, uh, I would say, round-the-world journey in a way. Uh, I, I came from a research background, uh, doing my PhD and postdoc at Penn, and then moved over into commercial strategy consulting and spent over a decade in that world. And during that time, worked for several large global companies. Uh, the last of which was IMS, and many people know IMS for their data, really first-in-class data set within the industry. Uh, there's also a, a very well-regarded consulting arm, and I was a, a part of that team for a number of years. And uh, we were a global operation, so it was actually the head of consulting in China who first connected me to the CEO of Salubris Pharmaceuticals, which is a China-based pharma company and the parent company of Salubris Biotherapeutics. And that introduction led to some discussions about setting up a venture fund, and those sort of uh, evolved into joining Salubris and working in a business development capacity, which I did. Uh, I joined as head of international business development, and at that time was introduced to what was the then forming US biotech subsidiary of Salubris, uh, Salubris Biotherapeutics, uh, headquartered in Gaithersburg, Maryland. So how did you decide you wanted to lead a biopharma company? I'm really excited about the science that is behind our lead program and, and in fact, uh, several of our programs in development. Uh, and there was a lot of scientific talent, uh, a lot of manufacturing talent within the team, but nobody who had a business background, clinical, regulatory background. And uh, so I just I saw an opportunity to really help out the company and drive these programs forward and be a part of something that I think is going to be really special. When people you know who are smart people but aren't in the field ask you and say, well, what do you do? How do you answer? I think that the simple answer to that question is always I, I develop new medicines or I'm helping to make new medicines to, to treat people and cure people. And then when they say, yeah, but what do you do? Do you, do you pick up the phone? Do you write stuff? Do you tell people what to do? Do you read stuff? I mean, how do you spend your day? <laughs> I know the common answer in consulting to that question is always it's different every day. And and for me, I never gave that answer in consulting because I always found it to be really frustratingly uninformative. Right. So <laughs> I, I started to give you that answer. But let me give you a little more detail. I, I am for our lead program currently heading up clinical and regulatory and thinking through commercial implications of all of our decisions. Uh, I deal with the IP. And so on any given day, I'm um, working with clinical sites that we're setting up, the investigators, uh, working with our CRO to develop protocols for the trial, uh, and then also you know, thinking about competitive uh, positioning for our molecule and, and market size and market opportunity and how we uh, you know, kind of 
project that or present that to potential partners down the road. So it, it can be a lot of different things. And, and then also I, I do continue to serve in the role as head of international business development for our uh, pharmaceutical parent company in China. So that takes up a fair amount of my time looking for deals uh, and, and negotiating deals, meeting with companies. And then as a result of strategic investments that we've made through the parent company, I'm also on four boards. And so that takes up a fair amount of my time as well. How'd you go about choosing Salubris Bio from what probably were many different opportunities you had at the time? What, what made you think, this will allow me to do the thing that I would like to achieve, I'd like to do at this point in my life? Well, it really comes back to the CEO. I, I think he's such an outstanding translational scientist. And this is coming from somebody who did his postdoc in translational medicine at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia for the lab, in the lab that became Spark Therapeutics. And working for Kathy High was an incredible experience. She's a great translational scientist. Will probably win the Nobel Prize for the work she's done in gene therapy. But John Lee, who is the CEO of Salubris Bio, has this very, I would say, unique way of blending uh, physiology and molecular biology and medicine together, understands how molecules work inside the body in a way that nobody else I've ever encountered in this industry does. And, and that's why I think our programs are so exciting. Uh, I, I think the other aspect of this role and this opportunity, which is really exciting, is China for a long time has not been on anybody's radar in the biopharmaceutical industry. And within the last few years, I, I think most people are aware that there's been a strong push in China to move their industry from a generics focus to an innovation focus. And they've done that through regulatory changes to push down the price of generic medicines in China and improve reimbursement for innovative medicines. And they're, they're funding all kinds of research initiatives. Uh, they're building cities of biotech, whereas we have hubs. Um, it, it's, it's incredible what they can do in China when they put their mind to it. And, and they have made the decision they wanna be a global leader in innovative drug development. Uh, but it takes time to get there. And so they are attracting talent uh, trained in the U.S. and trained in Europe, uh, but primarily the U.S., I think, back to China. And then also a number of Chinese companies have set up their own entities here in the U.S. to, to try to do innovative research where, you know, at, at the core of uh, global innovative research here in the U.S., I think that we can be one of the leading companies to really push the edge of um, what innovation means. So uh, a lot of companies from China got into biosimilars, and that was innovative at the time, uh, you know, biologic, and then maybe biobetters, and then maybe best in class. But I don't think any company yet that was based in China has really developed a completely novel, original, and an innovative product. And I'm not saying we will be the first, but I think we've got a shot with our lead program, JKO7. So it sounds like it, it was almost a love at first sight in the sense of the right person, the right company, as opposed to, this looks like an interesting idea. Let me do research for six months about similar entities to see if that's the one. Or, you know, was it clear? It must have been clear that this was what... Oh, very clear from the beginning. And, and I will say part of it... So I, I love working with John Lee, uh, CEO of Salubris Biotherapeutics. 
Also, Kevin Yi, who is the CEO of Salubris Pharma, uh, he spent uh, over 15 years in the U.S. He went to undergrad at Michigan. He did his MBA at Yale. He worked in Silicon Valley. He understands Western culture very well. He's, He's more or less my age. He's got kids, my kids' ages, and very easy to get along with, very enjoyable to speak with and work with. That's not typical for a CEO of a China-based pharma company. They tend to be older. They've been in generic medicine for a long time. They're pretty risk-averse. They don't understand what's called, right? And um, there's nothing wrong with that from where they're coming from, but it makes it more of a, a difficult culture fit to have a U.S. biotech working under the, the China-based entity. But Kevin makes it possible because of his unique background and experience. When you mentioned kids, it took me back to the simplification question one more time, Sam. Uh, Can I ask how old are your kids? 11 and 8. Okay. So when an 11-year-old or an 8-year-old gets asked in school, I don't know if they still ask questions like this, like what do your mom and dad do? Uh, Have you ever heard them give the answer of what dad does? Uh, Yeah. Well, my son says I'm a drug dealer. (laughs) I think my daughter's a little more politically correct about it and says something like, dad makes medicines. Do you feel that you have a management style and can you describe what that would be and why that works for you? I I do. I I think my um, quintessential management style, the way I would characterize it is flexible. Uh, you know, I can I can sit here and talk to you for an hour. I could lecture at you for an hour, and I can sit here and listen to you talk for an hour. And I'm equally comfortable in any of those roles. And I can be firm when I need to be firm, and I can be soft when I need to be soft. And I, I think that adaptability allows me to be a better uh, fit with different people and teams that I work with. Can you remember back when you were eight or nine years old, what you what your self-image was, what you thought you might be in the world at some point, and does it have anything to do with what you're doing? Absolutely. I mean, I knew even back then I wanted to be in science and medicine. Uh, and, you know, I, I think for a while that meant going to medical school and becoming a doctor. Uh, and as I approached the time when I was almost ready to enroll in medical school, Actually, I got into medical school out of high school in one of these accelerated programs, and I turned it down uh, because I wanted to have the full normal uh, university experience. Uh, but in the end, I, I think I'm in the perfect place for me, uh, working on medicine, but not engaging with patients on a day-to-day basis. What's new at Salubris Bio? Well, uh, I think the most exciting uh, recent news for our company is the FDA approved our first IND here in the U.S., and so that enables us to go into our first clinical trial, which will actually be uh, a trial in heart failure subjects. Our, Our lead program is called JK07. And it's a bispecific, bifunctional antibody-based molecule. We will be, as, as our team of uh, 20 people here in the U.S., the first company globally to put a bispecific antibody into the clinic in a cardiovascular indication. And, you know, we've talked a bit about already about why am I so excited about Salubris Bio and, and why do I enjoy being a part of the team so much. You know, there are, is such a large focus in Cambridge and in the U.S. and pretty much everywhere outside of China on oncology and rare disease. 
you see a lot of immunology also, uh, but oncology and rare disease is probably number one and two in terms of who gets funded and where are all the resources allocated in drug development. And there's a good reason for that, right? There's, there's big unmet needs clinically, and there is a lot of inelastic uh, pricing, uh, particularly in the U.S., in, in those areas. Uh, but the co consequence and sort of the casualty of that is uh, more research and, and more uh, resources allocated into diseases that affect millions of people. Uh, I mean, metabolic disease, you see a couple of big players, but for the most part, there's not a lot of activity there outside of that core uh, set of large pharma companies. Cardiovascular, the exact same thing. And because we're coming from China, because all of our products have to be relevant in China, we have uh, a focus on cardiovascular disease in addition to oncology. We're hedged, and I will acknowledge that all of our other preclinical programs are oncology. Uh, we focus specifically on complex biologics, and we focus on validated targets. And, and there aren't a lot of validated targets for complex biologics in cardiovascular disease, but our lead program is exactly that. And we're very proud to be the first company to achieve that milestone as a small team, uh, even ahead of all of the big pharma interested in cardiovascular. What do you say when people ask, who is Salubris Bio? I, I always say to start, we are the U.S. Uh, biotech subsidiary of a China-based pharmaceutical company. Uh, and then I think as we move into the clinic with this program, the image will change and will start to be defined more by what we're doing here in the U.S. And, and what we're doing globally because this program is very exciting. We have some very high profile sites and investigators that we're working with, and, and we think there's, there's a lot of potential. So uh, I, eventually, I think we'll be known more as a leader in complex biologics. When you're trying to describe in, in a terse way what the gap is that you're trying to fill, how do you tend to answer that one? So the gap is, is very easy, and this comes back to what we were talking about with the kind of um, ignoring of cardiovascular medicine and broader indications. So uh, let me give you a little bit of epidemiology background in heart failure. Heart failure, there's about 5 million to 6 million Americans with that disease. Uh, and it's divided into basically 50-50 into two different types of heart failure. There's heart failure with reduced ejection fraction or HEF-REF, where your heart simply isn't pumping enough blood through the circulatory system. And then the other 50% uh, have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, which is uh, essentially a stiffening of the heart so that there's a normal amount of blood flowing through the system, but the heart is working extra hard to make that happen. And over time, uh, bad consequences consequences result. Uh, and so for either of those diseases, there's a very high mortality rate once you hit the first hospitalization. We're talking millions of Americans who die from heart failure. And on the heart failure with reduced ejection fraction side, there are a number of pharmaceutical interventions and there are devices, also uh, med tech interventions that can be used to uh, alleviate symptoms and, and prolong life, uh, you know, essentially modify the course of the disease. In half PEF, there is literally nothing approved. You can open up the guidelines and it says, we have nothing, we need new drugs. Our product uh, is based on a recombinant growth factor that has been tested in the clinic by several companies, uh, one in China, and, and this goes back to our China heritage. We know that program very well. We know that company very well. Uh, another is here, here in the US. 
And both of them have seen very promising efficacy results, but they had several challenges with their molecules. So one is that there were some tolerability issues in GI tract. Two is that they had some safety concerns uh, about promoting cancer because it's a growth factor. And three is a very short half-life uh, for these molecules. So the infusion schedules were particularly burdensome, especially the China-based company. They had 10 consecutive days of 10 hours per day infusions. So that's not really going to uh, be tenable for a large population. So what we've done is we've taken this growth factor and we've, we've carved out the active domain and we fused it to the tail of an antibody. Uh, and so that gives us an antibody-like half-life in circulation, and that solves the PK problem. But it's more elegant than that because uh, the growth factor binds to two different proteins. One is called HER3 and one is called HER4. HER4 is what appears to be responsible for all the cardioregenerative effects of the molecule. And the binding to HER3 is what appears to be responsible for all the GI side effects and all the cancer risk. And so our antibody specifically blocks HER3 signaling. And the, the tail, therefore, is biased very much in favor of the HER4. So we think we will have solved uh, the safety problems, the tolerability problems, and the PK problem. And in addressing the PK problem, we think we can actually get much better efficacy in addition to a wider therapeutic window. That sounds like a compelling story. And I'm guessing that when you deliver that or the, and the people on your team do, and you tell that story, a certain number of people at a conference, let's say, come up to you afterwards and say, I understand it and I'm really interested, let's talk more. And then a certain number say, well, for whatever reason they say they're not interested. The, the part that interests me right now, of the ones who say, yeah, I'm interested, and then they kind of repeat it back to you, what you just told me, the ones who don't get it, the ones you have to come back and say, well, it's actually this. What, what is that? What is that misunderstanding? How do you help them to understand what it really is? Well, I, I think from, from a clinical standpoint, it's very clear when you have no options, when you have a 50% chance of dying within a few years once you have your first hospitalization, you're talking about over a million people in the U.S. who fit that description with HEFPEF. And look at the cost, uh, standard cost of biologics today. Uh, look at the, the cost to our system of heart failure today is somewhere on the order of 40 to $60 billion here in the US. And it's comparable to, you know, I, I think you look at the epidemiology and you look at the, the standard price benchmarks and you can see that the market for this type of product would be huge. And because we're dealing with a complex biologic that um, has to be tightly uh, kind of regulated in its activity, we, we think we're probably four or five years ahead of anybody else who would even consider starting. And right now, not a lot of companies even know what we're doing. So um, I, I think that's a pretty compelling case. The challenge for us is that because there hasn't been uh, such a focus on cardiovascular research within the biotech community here in Cambridge anyway, uh, I, I think people aren't as educated on the targets and the background. So they might hear that our, our molecule's active domain is NRG1 and not be very familiar with what that molecule has 
shown in non-clinical models and how it um, has been kind of demonstrated as, as active in the clinic in the past. And so our, our challenge is really to educate people and to bring them up to speed on cardiovascular research you know, more so than they probably are right now. I, I think then, I, you know, part of that is telling them energy one is so fundamental to uh, the, the human heart that in an animal model, if you knock it out, you, it's, it's lethal in utero. If you knock out its receptors of HER3 or HER4, it's lethal in utero. If you do selective knockout later in development, you get severe heart problems. And, and I think the other thing that people around here in, and more focused on oncology will be familiar with is uh, the Herceptin cardiotoxicity. And that's really the intersection uh, of this program and oncology that I think will resonate with a lot of people. So Herceptin is an antibody that blocks HER2 signaling. And I, I think very well known, regarded as one of the best oncology drugs out there of all time, right? Uh, so, but it's also known that in some patients, HER2 uh, blockade does have a deleterious effect on ejection fraction. And uh, eventually people figured out that it's worse in the presence of an anthracycline. And so you never get uh, simultaneous use of anthracyclines and trastuzumab or Herceptin in patients today. Uh, HER2 is the dimerization partner for HER3 and HER4, and the induction of signaling is NRG1, our, our molecule for cardiovascular uh, regeneration. So what happens is when you block HER2, you're actually blocking the NRG1 signaling pathway. And the reason that it's worse in, in the presence of anthracyclines is anthracyclines themselves damage the heart. And this is the fundamental repair pathway in the heart. So when you're blocking a damaged heart from repairing itself, you get a worse outcome than if you have sort of a, a steady state equilibrium uh, or equilibrium with the heart. What can you tell me about the pipeline and how it helps to differentiate who Salubris Bio is? I don't think that we're the only company out there that's focused on complex biologics, but I do think that there's a limited number of them, and we don't have a single standard monoclonal antibody in our pipeline. Everything is a fusion protein or bispecific or, or an ADC, somehow antibody plus, right? And then I think beyond that, there are some companies out there that have a lot of great ideas about complex uh, biologics, but they don't know how to build them successfully. They don't know how to build them in a way that's scalable. And when you look at the composition of our team, it's the CEO is a scientist and me and an admin two early stage uh, research scientists, everybody else is in manufacturing. We have such a heavy emphasis on developability because the, the last thing I would say that separates us is coming from the, our China-based uh, parent company, we don't undertake programs in highly risky, novel, big biology, uh, and we're rather focusing on validated targets and using this complex biology, biology and our skills to develop molecules that um, are clinically meaningfully improved in some way, but without just making the next big discovery. And so that, that together, I think, is what really defines us as a team and as a company. What makes a good partner to Salubris Bio? 
Well, uh, obviously, we're, we're a small entity right now, and cardiovascular programs tend to be uh, fairly large, expansive, exactly. And uh, so I, I think right now, our, our partners are the clinical sites that we're working with. Um, but eventually, we would expect to uh, explore partnerships with larger pharmaceutical companies to really fully take advantage of the potential of this molecule if uh, things go the way we expect them to go in the clinic. I know now that you're focused very much on on your preclinical and clinical work. Do you have, can you find the time to step back at this point and say, you know, if this thing develops the way I hope it will, I can be a part of something that actually really significantly helps people. You know, this question reminds me when I was sort of wrapping up my postdoc and my postdoc, to give you some context, uh, this is before Spark Therapeutics formed. And so I was in the lab. Uh, it was not the typical research experience. We were running two trials out of the lab, the Labor's Congenital Amaurosis trial and the Hemophilia B trial that eventually rolled into Spark Therapeutics. Uh, we had in-house GMP manufacturing. We had in-house process development. It was like a, a mid-sized biotech. I mean, there are 50 people in the lab, the vast majority focused on, on supporting these programs in some way or another. And seeing actually subjects from the trials, patients walk up and down the halls and, and they were cured uh, of their disease. Uh, you know, I guess it's too early to say lifelong cure, but, but certainly cured uh, for a number of years now. And it was really exciting and, and very meaningful for me to be a part of that. Uh, and, and so I was talking to my PhD advisor and he uh, you know, had very, he had great perspective. He was the vice dean for research at Penn. And he told me, you know, you should go pick a disease and cure it. And, you know, this in the context of being in a lab that was really at the cutting edge of gene therapy. Uh, but here I am 10, well, 13 years later, and the disease that I've picked is heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. No cure, no treatment, no symptom relief, no functional improvement, no disease modification. There's nothing for these patients. And we have what we think could be a really powerful uh, treatment for that uh, patient population. And so I, I'm still inspired by that moment when he told me, pick a disease and go cure it. And I, I hope that our product is, is an answer for those patients. How did Salubris Bio decide to establish a presence here in the US in Gaithersburg and, and where we are today in Cambridge? I, I think eventually you will see Salubris Bio uh, getting a bit of separation from the parent company in China and starting to engage with investors here in the US. Cardiovascular trials are not cheap, and I, I think uh, we'll want to have some access to capital in the US over time. So I, I think that we will have more connections and, and roots established here in the coming years. Uh, but just being a part of this community, uh, there's a coffee shop a couple blocks up the street, A4, A Area 4, great coffee, and uh, was in there with my kids after swimming lessons on a Sunday afternoon, sat down with them and see the, the woman next to me is reading a book on liver disease. And of course, I struck up a conversation because I find this very interesting. And it turned out uh, she was uh, Kathy Bodish. Uh, she was at the time CEO of Permian Biologics and now running the Sunrise Startup Program at, at Sanofi. 
and uh, you know kept in touch over the years. It's it's that type of interaction more than anything else that I think makes Cambridge a special place versus San Francisco. You know, I've spent a fair amount of time in South San Francisco, and actually am impressed at how built up it is. And I think it's a little. Uh, closer to getting the critical mass of density that will give it the Cambridge vibe, but they're not there yet. Certainly San Diego, a driving community, San Francisco, most people are still getting in their cars in the parking lot and driving home. Here, there's so much walking and so much personal interaction on the streets that I I think it gives you uh, more of a connection to the community than it does in those other cities. I'll give you another example. So same, same setting, swimming lessons in the locker room, my kids getting changed, and I hear two people talk about uh, moving out of consulting and into a, a pharma role. And I was looking to hire somebody at the time. So struck a conversation, turned out uh, this guy worked for McKinsey. Now he is at Eric's uh, Biosciences as an investor and we're talking about investment opportunities. You don't get that anywhere else in the world. What have you learned about how to work across cultures Gaithersburg and Cambridge are different cultures even though obviously it's it's US culture and then going back and forth to China what have you learned about how to make that work there was a bit of an adjustment period I would say in terms of uh, mixing of cultures Uh, and and this is coming from somebody who worked for a long time for multiple global uh, companies where you know early morning calls are normal late night calls can happen from time to time. It's different with China because there's so much drive and ambition to be successful and to make things happen. I, I've spent now years doing four or five nightly calls a week. Uh, and so I, and I also get up in the morning and at 5 a.m. I have an inbox that's completely full. and. Uh, so getting used to this rolling sort of continuous workflow uh, was an adjustment, and I think it's not for everybody. I, I love what I do, and, and so that makes it uh, an acceptable work-life balance for me because it's not balanced, but it is what I want to be doing, and I'll, I'll take that trade off anytime. At the beach, they have these T-shirts that say it's 5 a.m., uh, 5 p.m. somewhere, and uh, you've got cocktails. <laughs> For me, it's, it's 9 a.m. somewhere. You know, one thing that I find really interesting is where will China originated and China-based companies be in this industry in 10 years? And uh, nobody knows the answer. There's a lot of dynamics at play. So on the one hand, there is such a huge amount of resources being poured into biotech and innovative medicines in China. At the same time, they have 1.5 billion people to provide healthcare for. And so they're very intolerant of high prices. And uh, prices come down, have come down very quickly on the generic side once they decided that that had to happen. Prices have come down within uh, crowded branded classes because there is um, you know, a need for inexpensive, effective medicines. And so I, I think that that is going to be a bit of a drag on innovative medicine in China because there's this tension between investors who don't want to take on too much risk and scientists who are trained to uh, engineer things in a way that's better rather than doing uh, you know, novel discovery research. 
and prices that just don't um, support a return on investment once you get to the market. Uh, I, I think though that over time, you will see some companies emerge, uh, which originated in China, to be global leaders. I, I think Beijing is pretty much there in my mind. There will be more. And uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I used to go to panels and I'd say, you know, everybody in this room can name five Japanese pharma companies. And there probably are only a handful of people that can name five China-based pharma companies. I'm so immersed in my own world. I don't know if that's true or not anymore. I think most people know Beijing and Xilab. I'm not sure how many other China-based companies people could uh, name off the top of their head. But eventually, you're going to have some winners uh, emerge from that pool of companies. And, and I do think that Salubris Bio will be one of them. I think we won't be the only one. And I'm excited to be a part of that movement. Sam, thanks for taking time to talk with me today. Thanks, thanks for having me again, John, and I really appreciate the opportunity to tell our story. As co-founder of a company with offices on two continents, Sam Murphy's multitasking, multi-time zone life will sound familiar to many BioBoss listeners. As Sam says, I've spent years doing four or five nightly calls a week. I get up at five each morning with an inbox that's completely full. It's not for everybody, but I love what I do. You know, at the beach, they have these t-shirts that say it's 5 p.m. somewhere with a picture of cocktails. For me, it's 9 a.m. somewhere. While getting things done in this multi-continent workplace is a daunting task, the most significant challenge is the leadership required to develop and communicate a vision for what sets a company apart. From my perspective, a guy who was accepted to medical school straight out of high school is probably the right kind of person to meet this leadership challenge. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss.